All right. Uh, this morning we're going to be looking at Psalm 56. Psalm 56. Be merciful to me, my God. For my enemies are in hot pursuit. All day long they press their attack. My adversaries pursue me all day long. In their pride, many are attacking me. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust and am not afraid. But what can mere mortals do to me? All day long they twist my words. All their schemes are for my ruin. They conspire, they lurk, they watch my steps, hoping to take my life. Because of their wickedness, do not let them escape. In your anger, God, bring the nations down. Record my misery. List my tears on your scroll. Are they not in your record? Then my enemies will turn back when I call for help. By this I will know that God is for me. In God, whose word I praise. In the Lord, whose word I praise. In God I trust and am not afraid. What can man do to me? I am under vows to you, my God. I will present my thank offerings to you. For you have delivered me from death and my feet from stumbling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. Before we consider this passage together, let's pray. Father, you know uh, the circumstances of our lives, you know uh, the thoughts of our minds, you know uh, the inclinations and the attitudes of our hearts, you know everything about us. Uh, We can deceive other people, we can even frequently deceive ourselves, but you are never deceived by us, by our posturing and our rationalizations and pretensions, you know precisely who we are. And so Lord, you know what we need. You know the truth that we need to hear. You know the areas of our life that require repentance. You know the areas where we require growth. You know the areas where, by your grace, we are experiencing fruitfulness and excelling. And so this morning, whatever it is, I just pray that you would have your hand upon us in a very real and special way. Uh, Touch every one of us on the basis of your word and your truth so that we can all leave this place not having just gathered for another religious ceremony, but that we will leave conscious of having met with you, the living God. That is our desire. Uh, Forgive us for showing up week after week without actually expecting you to change our lives, uh, to get a hold of us in radical ways, uh, to make us more like Jesus Christ. Lord, from, for the very, uh, from the very oldest to the very youngest here, I pray that by your Spirit and through the riches of Jesus Christ, there will be tremendous blessing in every way. And may every blessing that you give us be truly, not just in a cliched way, but may it truly be turned back into items of praise. 
And Father, if there are any here today who are struggling, if there are any who have uh, who are in confusion or brokenhearted, Lord, if there are any who these words of this psalm, uh, in terms of enemies, just resonates with, Lord, in a very special way, be with them. Strengthen them, protect them, guide them and keep them safe, and lead them to yourself in such a way that all fear is dispelled. You can do this, Lord. We look to you for your grace. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, next week I'm away, and Jake is going to be preaching, and Shane is going to be teaching adult Sunday school. Uh, Adult Sunday school and Sunday school for all ages started today. Now, the only reason I'm mentioning this is that obviously most of you didn't know that, because most of you weren't here. And of course, none of you would have missed it. Uh, so, uh, Sunday school starts next week. If you're interested, we're actually going to be talking about, uh, not next week, I don't know what Shane's doing, but the week after that, uh, I'm going to be starting a little series on uh, the role of men and women in the church. Uh, this is not something which I'm hoping will be merely theoretical. Uh, it's something which I hope may lead us to uh, implementation of various things. So, you're going to want to be there I suspect, okay, um, because if things come up later, uh, I will repeat myself. Uh, and if I've had to spend six or seven hours teaching throughout all Sunday school, if there's a business meeting where people have questions, if I need to repeat six or seven hours of material, I'll do that. Uh, but you might want to just be there the first time, okay? So we'll try to uh, cover some of these things uh, together next week. Now, Psalm 56. Sometimes you're taught... Uh, And there's nothing wrong with this in general. Uh, Sometimes we're taught to pray uh, with the acronym ACTS. How many of you are familiar with with this? Okay, so what does the A stand for? Adoration. You begin with by praising God. And that's that's a reasonable thing to do. And and then the C is what? Confession. So now I'm going to confess my sins. Again, a reasonable thing to do. The T is thanksgiving, because of course you can't be thankful while you're adoring God. That has to wait down the pipe until after you've confessed your sin. Uh, And then S is supplication, which is a word that no one knows what it means. So we get to to the end of T and we're like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do next. Supplicate, I don't know what that is. And so we just move on, right, and watch TV or whatever it is that we're doing. And that's great. There's there's some reasonable balance there. Not quite the Lord's Prayer and structure, but, but those elements... Almost anything has heuristic usefulness as long as we're not legalistic. So is there, some, is there some utility there? Sure, sure, sure. The problem with it is manifold if it becomes the only way you pray. Or if it becomes the right way. We're very, very, very good at coming up with, with handy human rules that then become sort of, this is the only way of doing it. If you're not doing it this way, it's wrong. Right? The Bible doesn't teach us how you're supposed to pray. The problem with it is, in terms of adoration, it can very quickly be, what I really want is to get to the S, but to do that, I have to butter up God first. So I'm going to say things like, God, you're really great, Uh, you're really loving, you're really awesome, and I'm just sort of buttering up God, rushing through, I'm not really adoring, so I don't have time. 
So what I really care about is asking him to help me get an A on the exam I didn't study for, or whatever it is that we're going to be asking for his help with. We're rushing to that end. The psalmist here doesn't feel the need of following that rubric. He does not start out by saying, God, you are an amazing, awesome, wonderful God who I love so much, but I have this problem. He also doesn't confess sin anywhere in this particular prayer. Other psalms are all about confession. He starts with confession. Other psalms do start with adoration. This just starts with him pouring out his heart, be merciful to me, my God. That is not a statement of adoration. It's not a statement of confession. It's not a statement of thanksgiving. He begins with supplication. I have a problem. Lord, I am begging you for help. God knows what's in your heart. Before you ask, he knows what's there. And so we don't need to sort of approach him with any kind of artificial format whatsoever. He knows us thoroughly. And so if our lives really are lived in relationship, if prayer is almost more of of an environment in which we live rather than an activity that we do every once in a while, then all of those things, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication, what you'll find is they all sort of interweave with one another. They're all perspectival. They're all entryways into the relationship. You You can imagine in some ways how artificial it would be that in your friendships or in your home, if whenever you had to talk to someone, you had to follow a rubric. You know, I have to, I have to rush through. So, so, you know, you might say, before you ask for what you want, you know, you start with compliments. You know, I have to compliment you. Okay, fine. Uh, you're nice. You know, and then, then it's next. Confession. Uh, I'm not the best person. And then it's Thanksgiving. I'm thankful that you made supper and then I can ask for what I want. I mean, it would be so stilted. You could never, never, never have a real vibrant relationship like that. It's the same with God. You can't have a rubric with God. You just need to approach him. The psalmist here, be merciful to me, my God. I'm in need of mercy. I'm in need of compassion. This is the overwhelming burden of my life. I am begging you. I am pleading with you. Pour out mercy on me. You are my God. That's what's in my heart. Why? For my enemies are in hot pursuit. All day long they press their attack. In repetition, my adversaries pursue me all day long. In their pride, many are attacking me. So there's two things here. The first is the attack. They're attacking me. They're attacking me all day long. So the first thing is the attack. The second thing is the relentless nature of it. All day long they're after me. All day long they're pursuing me. All day long I feel the pressure of them breathing down my neck. I know they have it in for me. I can't escape it. Now, for the psalmist, these literally are enemies. People who are pursuing him. People who are literally attacking him, trying to take his life. It's a military context. For many of us, though, this sort of psalm is patient of a flexible, elastic application where the enemies may be a little bit more metaphorical. Maybe, now, maybe it is a person. Maybe they are people who are causing you problems. But there are other issues in our lives that just dog our steps. There are other complaints that we have. There are other pressures that we face that we just feel like we're just overwhelmed and they're inescapable. And all day long, it's like all of the world is trying to undo me 
everything is against me. Everyone is out to ruin me. Whether it's you know the, the, the global economy, you know whether it's it's the professors, whether it's my boss, whether it's my spouse, whether it's my kids, whether it's my neighbors. Everyone is against me, or someone is against me, and I just can't get away from it. God have mercy. I feel like I'm going out of my mind. It's the relentless nature. I mean, we could all handle being attacked if it was sort of contained to 10 minutes a day. Yeah, 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 just get through this just from 5.50 to 6 o'clock. Just do whatever you want. You know, shoot whatever arrows you want. You know, do, say whatever you want. As long as it's 10 minutes. It's not 10 minutes. It's going on again and again and again and again. So what do you do? Well... The natural human response in these situations is fear. That's how we respond. Now, this is partly, if not even mainly, physiological. It is when we feel threatened, then you know our, our nervous system kicks into high gear. Our autonomic system, you know, sort of ratchets up a little bit. You know, you have adrenaline, and you're sort of in fight or flight mode. And so in situations like this, you're going to feel like one of two things. You're going to feel like, it might depend on your personality and, and all the rest, but you're going to feel like you either just want to, you know, I have never felt this way before, just so you know. You either want to throw someone through the window, or you just want to freeze. You just want to turtle. And you just want to ride out the storm and hope that everything is sort of just, whatever raging is going on, it just kind of passes over you eventually. It, it's fight or flight. But both of those are responses to the more primal emotion of fear. I'm afraid right now. I can't cope right now. I don't want to do right now. I'm overwhelmed right now. Whether it's a medical diagnosis or, or a lawsuit or someone who's after you or whatever it is. I just am terrified. My life seems like it's never going to be the same. I don't have any hope for a good resolution. That's the natural response. So it's okay. In fact, it's unavoidable to be afraid. You cannot rationalize yourself out of fear. You can't. Your body system response to fear is not based on rational analysis. There are deeper physiological uh, bodily systems that take over. You, you can't analyze your way out of it. You can't. It's not, it is not possible. So what do you do? What you do is you acknowledge entirely your sense of desperation and hopelessness and helplessness and vulnerability and fear. And you consciously choose, not in, in, in full face of the reality of how I'm feeling, which is terrified, I will trust in my God. That's true. You do not say, I will trust in God once I get over my fear. Because you'll never get over your fear. And, and you don't say, well, I must not trust God very much because I'm still afraid. What the psalmist says is, when I am afraid, I will trust in you. So, I am legitimized in being terrified. It is legitimate for me to be afraid. And when I am afraid, which there are times in my life when I will be, I will just be scared. In those times, 
I will still choose to trust in God. This is something that's so desperately important for us to understand. We in the church, in particularly in North America, that's obviously the part of the church that I'm most familiar with, but, but we, have, we have somehow created this entirely destructive connection between emotions and faith. So, if you just have enough faith, you're always going to feel happy. Or if you just have enough faith, and you're never going to be afraid. Or if you just have enough faith, and everything's going to be fine. And so when you do your devotions, the point in our devotions for so many people, it, it's not to learn about God. It, it's not to, out of discipline, demonstrate to God how much we care about Him. It's all about creating a devotional mood. So, so I read the one-year Bible, or whatever you're doing. You know, so I read the Bible, and then I pray. And, and, but if I don't feel like somebody had some sort of mystical, spiritual, high experience, then I wasn't devotional. I say, well, that's crazy. I mean, we're so emotionally focused that, that our whole idea is that you know, I can judge my spirituality on the sheer basis of which emotions I'm feeling, and even worse, how intense those emotions are. But the reality is, if you're, if you're reading the Bible every single day and praying every single day, you're not going to be having spiritual highs and mountaintop experiences every single day. And if that becomes the goal, then you're always going to feel defeated. Now, Derek Kidner, commentator, not of too many generations ago, maybe just one. Excellent pithy commentator, particularly on the Old Testament. He says this here. He says, Faith is seen here as a deliberate act in defiance of one's emotional state. Faith is seen here as a deliberate act in defiance of one's emotional state. Meaning, this is how I feel, but I'm not going to allow my feelings to dictate whether or not I have a relationship with God. I'm not going to do that. I am going to choose to have a relationship with God. I am going to choose to trust God regardless of how I feel. I, in fact, I defy my emotions right now. <laughs> my emotions tell me to turtle, but you know what? No, I'm going to God. That's what I'm going to do. And even if I can't physiologically stop feeling afraid, even if fear is going to be a deeply rooted, grounded emotion, that's okay. I, I'm going to take my fear to God too. And even if I'm still afraid after I've prayed, even if I don't feel peace of mind or whatever it is that we're trying to you know, engender in ourselves, even if I'm still terrified after I've prayed, I'm still clinging to God and to Him alone. I trust God even when I am terrified. And I don't expect that He's just going to take away that feeling. I'm going to trust Him because I'm scared. I'm going to trust him through being scared. And I'm not going to allow the devil or a well-meaning Christian, sometimes more similar than we'd want to admit, uh, I, I'm not going to allow anyone to tell me that if I just trusted God more, I wouldn't feel this way. No, when I'm afraid, I will trust in God. In God, I trust and am not afraid. That's interesting. Eventually, though, Trust is the great antidote to fear. Eventually, faith and fear can't coincide together forever. Eventually, I trust in God, so I am not afraid. You can't rush the process, though. 
And I'm not afraid because what can mere mortals do to me? Literally, it's flesh. What can flesh do to me? What are we? Dust of the ground. with, With a spark of life from God. Animated by his breath. But what can mere flesh do in when confronted with Almighty God? What can anyone do to us when, when there is a God in the universe? Uh, what, what can anyone do to us? What can an enemy do to us if God is on our side? Now, we don't need to fear flesh. We don't need to fear mere mortals when God is on our side. I'm going to say more about that in a little bit, though. Because it is also worth noting that the psalmist who lives in a blood-soaked, violent society and culture actually has a little bit of an idea of what flesh can do to flesh. And if you look around the world, you can discover there actually is an awful lot that mortals can and do do to one another. In full light of that, though, What can people do to me? How do you resolve that? We'll we'll talk more about that in a bit. All day long, they twist my words. All their schemes are for my ruin. They conspire, they lurk, they watch my steps, hoping to take my life. Because of their wickedness, do not let them escape. In your anger, God, bring the nations down. Now, verses 5 through 7, there are some textual issues. So uh, translations will vary sometimes in, in somewhat significant ways. Uh, in these verses. Twist my words may be a slight over-translation, but it's really difficult to know the exact uh, meaning here. Somehow, there's a twisting. Whether it's, it's, it's attempting to sort of twist and grind the person down, or it's a distortion of their words, we're not entirely sure. It may be precisely about words, or it may be more general. I guess that's what I'm trying uh, to say. Now, if it's twist my words specifically, have to admit, this is something that I live in, uh, I was going to say, something that I live in fear of, but that would not be overly good to say, given the context of the psalm. Uh, This is something that that I I dread. The twisting of words. Uh, Unfortunately, I am responsible for releasing an obscene volume of words into the world every week. And so whether it's lecturing in the classrooms or preaching or writing or whatever it is that I'm doing, uh, there are words pouring out of me all the time. And, and most of them, because of that, you know, because of the sheer volume, a lot of them are going to be wrong. That, that's all there is to it. However, it is utterly dreadful to know that a given percentage of what I say is going to be misunderstood or there are going to be what seem to people logical inferences drawn out of my statements, which I would not hold to. So I'll say, well, you were really saying is this. I say, that's not what I'm saying at all, actually. Uh, or if I try to say something with nuance to people, uh, or, or to, to students who, who are incapable of nuance, then they think that I, I believe a whole variety of things that I don't believe. And it's just, it's just really, really tough. I mean, you, you need to find someone not only who, who shares vocabulary, but has a shared grammar, you know, in order to actually communicate. The, the, the deeper syntax has to be the same. You have to be actually be able to communicate. So twisting words can take place unintentionally. But this is deliberate distortion. 
This is looking to create problems. This is looking to take words out of context. This is looking to say, well, you said this. But you know they didn't. The enemies are looking for any opportunity to distort so they can have power, so they can run the person down. If you don't have verbal dexterity, if someone is uh, twisting your words, you can feel, you can be, it, it's very disempowering. If you don't have the verbal ability to stand up and clarify what you meant, twisting words is, is one of the easiest ways to ruin people. It, it really is. Uh, some of you will, will recall the song, well, it's not, not too old, Anna uh, Nalek, uh, the song Breathe, 2 a.m., uh, where she talks about um, so trying to write a song, getting her wor- words down on a page. If she can get them out of, out of from inside of her, you know, they're, they're inside of her threatening the life to which they belong. If I can just get my words out, then, then maybe I'll be able to survive. And writing the song at 2 a.m. And then you know, she said, I feel like I'm naked in front of the crowd. These, these are the words of my diary screaming out loud, and I know that you'll take them and use them however you want to. But she feels this. Here are the words, but once they're out, you will either treat them respectfully and you will understand them, or you will misunderstand them, or you will distort them. But once our words are out, there's no recall total or otherwise. They're there. And the psalmist here feels that as he's living his life, people are distorting his actions, his words. They're willfully misunderstanding. They're looking for ways to ruin him. There are open enemies. All day long, my enemies pursue me. Verse 1, there are also hidden enemies. They're lurking. They're hiding. They're scheming. That's a terrible thing. It's one thing to know that this person has it out for you. It is terrifying to suspect that there are whole circles of people who are looking to engineer your takedown and ruin. Because then you don't know who to trust. And if you ever experience any sort of betrayal, then the reality is you're going to end up not trusting anyone. Uh, unless it's in the most exceptional circumstances imaginable. Hidden enemies and open enemies both. The prayer then is, Lord, don't let them get away with it. The appeal is to God, because God is greater than all. No enemy can stand against him. In your anger, God, bring the nations down. And I, I've, I feel like I've harped on this theme not too much over the summer, because I, I, whatever I do is in perfect proportion and balance. Uh, but I don't want to, I don't want to sort of play this too much, except that it's so dreadfully important. I feel like it needs to be said again and again and again. In your anger, God, bring the nations down. You know what he's saying? Is he saying again, and me saying again, a large part of, of Spiritual engagement with God centers around, if we're being biblically balanced, it centers around just being fed up and not being able to take it anymore when you look around at all the injustice in the world. Like just, just, just being so sick of it. And, and, and having this sort of cotton candy veneer Christianity where the whole goal is to be nice. 
the goal here for the psalmist is not, Lord, help me to be nice. It's in your anger destroy the nations. That's what he says. That's awfully different from, Lord, help them to come to the worship service and leave feeling happy. It's, Lord, in your anger bring the nations down because it's wrong. I said this until I blew in the face. It is wrong. It is sickeningly perverse that there are kids who are pressed into sex slavery in the world. That is utterly disgusting, and it is wrong for us not to be furious and out of our minds that that's happening in this world. Lord, in your anger, bring the nations down. Lord, stop this. And if we never have any sort of sense of outrage, I, I, I tell you this, you, you don't have the heart of God. Because the heart of God is not sentimentality and general benevolent feelings of happiness no matter what's going on. The heart of God is that God is love. And, and be, precisely because God is love, there's an, an intensity in his holiness which burns and consumes and destroys and should cause us to mourn and work to end some of these structures. In your anger, bring the nations down. That's what needs to happen. Record my misery. Uh, let me just say one more thing about that. I promise you. I promise you. It is impossible. It is impossible to truly love a child and be apathetic if they are sexually abused. I promise you, you do not love the child if your response is apathy. It just You just don't love them. You can't. If you love a child who is pressed into sex slavery, then you will burn with indignation and anger that such a thing is possible. And, and so this is not love or anger. This is if in some context there isn't fury, there's no love. It's proof. Record my misery. List my tears on your scroll. Are they not in your record? God, you know what I'm experiencing. You know what, I, what I'm enduring. Lord, you, you, you see this. You, 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 you sense my, my feelings. You know my fears. You, you know, you know the, the, my despair. You know the ending of my dreams. You know my depression. You know my discouragement. You, you know everything about me, Lord. You've listed it. In fact, this actually might be translated. You have kept count of my restless nights. You have kept track of my restless nights. You've put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your record? In other words, all the tossing and turning, all of the, all of the longing that's unfulfilled, all of, all of that desire that we feel you know, so much and so deeply, God, God sees it all. He knows it. He knows us thoroughly, and he cares. And the psalm is saying, Lord, you've, you've seen all the times when I can't sleep. You've seen all the thoughts of my mind. You, you, you know that what I'm going through, Lord, God, act. You've, you've recorded it. Now, now bring out the record and act in accordance with it. Do something. Then, when you do this problem, my enemies will turn back when I call for By this, I will know that God is for me. God, get up! 
Arise, clothe yourself in, in strength and power. You know, using the, the language of Isaiah, Lord, clothe yourself in your armor. And you do know, I know that you know this, but I'll say it anyway, it's amazing. In Ephesians 6, the armor of God that a lot of us have memorized. And how many of you at one point in Sunday school, BBS, or as an adult, how many of you memorized the armor of God? Okay. More of you should have that. I'm a little bit, I'm a little bit taken aback. Uh, you know that passage, you know, put on the full armor of God, and you're doing all this so wonderful, it's military and all the rest. You do realize it's the armor of God, because in Isaiah, God puts those same articles on himself when he goes to war. So what God is doing, is what Paul is doing, he's saying, remember Isaiah when God the warrior, Yahweh the warrior gets up and clothes himself in his armor, you put on that armor too. He has a smaller junior set for you. You know, you're going to go to war with Yahweh, the warrior, with Almighty God clothed in his armor. He has some stuff for you to dress up into. It's an amazing thing. Lord, when you go to war for me, I'm going to know that you're my God. When you deliver me from these enemies, oh, it's going to be confirmed to me that you are on my side. Because you can bring about a deliverance that I cannot imagine. I want to say one thing here, though. I was reminded uh, this week, uh, actually yesterday, someone was uh, reminding me of of the old Christian joke. And and old Christian jokes are the best jokes, right? They're always so funny. Uh, But but, uh, you'll recall uh, the story, a little jokey story, of um, the person who was in a flood. And we can either say that they're on a building, or we can say that they're on a mountain, or a right, doesn't really matter. We'll say that the floodwaters are coming up, so they had to climb on the roof of their house. Okay? And they cry out, Lord, rescue me. How do you know this joke? How do you know where this is going already? Oh my goodness, more of you have this joke memorized and know about the armor of God. That is the most shameful thing. That is everything you need to know about Western Christianity right there. Uh, we know these jokes, we don't know the armor of God. So I'm going to tell the joke anyway, and... I expect you to laugh, no matter what, okay? Even if you know where we're going. So, and a rowboat comes by, and this guy's on his roof, and, and they say, get in, get in. He says, no, I don't know, I know that's right, God's going to deliver me. Okay, so the rowboat goes off. And then, and then you know, the water gets a little bit higher, and another boat comes by, and they say, get in. He goes, no, 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 don't, don't worry, God's going to deliver me. Right. And the water's coming up right, right up to the guy's neck, and, and a rescue helicopter comes by, and, and it's, there's a ladder. They climb up the ladder. We're here to rescue. No, 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 no. God didn't deliver me. The person drowns. And he stands before God. He says, God, I trusted you to deliver me. And God says, yeah, I sent you two boats and a helicopter. What did you want me to do? You know, like God uses means too, right? I mean, so, so it's not like God says, well, I'm just going to sort of just, sometimes he does. Sometimes he supernaturally intervenes in lives in miraculous ways. He actually does. But very, very, very often he gives us regular means that we are to use. That is, he's, one of the reasons that there's a community so we can help each other out. It's one of the reasons we exist. And God gives us people, and they're from him, so deliverance is always from God. But it's through means, it's through the boats, it's through the helicopters, it's through your friends, it's through the police, it's through whoever you need. Don't miss sight of the fact that God uses means to bring about deliverance and to accomplish his end. Sometimes sometimes you're too afraid to fight your own battles. That's fine. Sometimes God will raise up a knight to fight for you. Sometimes you just need a champion. Let's, let someone be your champion. Maybe that's how God will deliver you. Let someone else fight your battles. Let a community surround you. Let people love you. Let people help you. 
And in the end, there will be a great deliverance. And it will be from God. He will get the glory. He will get the praise. But he will deliver you through surrounding you with the people and the resources that you need. In God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust and am not afraid, what can man do to me? That's obviously a repetition of verses 3 and 4. In God whose word I praise, probably here is because of the promises of God. I praise God because of his word, his promises, his covenant promises to me. But what can man do to me? Well, a lot. Uh, A lot. People can uh, abuse you. That happens every day. That is happening somewhere in our city right now. I promise you. In our city right now, there is someone who's being abused. Guaranteed. People can torture each other mentally, emotionally, and even physically. That's happening in our world right now this exact moment. People can kill you. There are thousands of people who are being killed today by other people in this world. This is to say nothing of the atrocities that we are capable of, of perpetuating. Think of, think of a South Sudan or Rwanda or Uganda a, a decade, 15 years ago. People can do an awful lot The psalmist isn't living in some sort of world where that doesn't happen. The psalmist is living in a world where he has seen bloodshed, where he has fought, where he has killed people himself. But really, what can people do to us? It almost begs for a New Testament, uh, sort of a New Testament fulfillment, this, this section. What can man do to me? Well, if you actually think about it, lots. But you have to be driven to that Romans 8 kind of place where, I know the psalmist isn't thinking Romans 8 here, obviously, but if God is for us, who can be against us? We are more than conquerors. For your sake, we face death all day long. What's so so separated from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord? Nakedness? People can strip you naked. There's a a pastor who I have an enormous amount of love and respect for that I met in Uganda, uh, who one night, uh, the Lord Jesus' army soldiers literally stripped him naked and sent him out into the jungle and said, if we ever see you again, we're going to kill you. And and he he spent the night naked in the jungle, went back the next day, put his clothes back on and stayed the pastor of the community because he said, if we leave, who's going to give these people hope? The hope is in the gospel. So nakedness? No. Famine? No. Sword? That's what Paul says. Can the sword separate you from the love of Christ, from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus? The sword is a symbol of death. If someone kills you, are you separated from the love of God? No! If God is for me, who can be against me? There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Nakedness, famine, sword, nothing can ever separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors, he says. More than conquerors. Not not even a conqueror. I mean, that's a a good day when you're a conqueror. You know, it's a pretty fantastic day when you're more than a conqueror. Most of us don't even have any idea what that means. But it means that even when people try to harm you, they help you. 
Not only do you win, you come out better on the other side, no matter what it is that you've been through. That's the kind of God you serve. You want deliverance? God doesn't promise to exempt you from every difficult, painful thing you'll ever go through. But he promises you he can give you grace so that you come through whatever it is, including death. And ultimately, no harm has come to you because he will bless you and care for you and enrich you for all of eternity, no matter what. What can man do to me? In this life, a lot, but in the ultimate scheme of things, nothing. I am under vows to you, my God, I will present my thank offerings to you, for you have delivered me from death and my feet from stumbling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. So in other words, here, God is, we praise God for his word. God has, promised, has made promises to us, and we make vows to him in response. And what are some of the promises that we're more than conquerors? What are some of the promises you know, that all things, God will work in all things for our good? That, that God is a sovereign God and He gives us the grace that we need. These are promises that God has given to us. He delivers us from our enemies. He delivers us here. He delivers the psalmist from death. He delivers the psalmist from falling and stumbling. Why? Why does God, have you ever, have you ever wonder about this? Why does God care about us? It actually seems like the most absurd thing in all of the world to think to stop and think about who you are and to think, God is interested in me. Like God. Me. Why does God act to deliver me? So I can walk before him. So I can know him. So we can have a relationship. Why does God care? The reality is, I probably want to say, I have no idea. But the other answer would be, it's just who he is. His love is so incredibly immense, it falls on people like us. He wants to know us. I have no idea why, but he does. He delivers us from stumbling so that we can walk before God in the light of life. The light of life. Like life is this burning sunbeam. Now where have you gone through? You've, you start out with enemies. They're real. You start out with fear. It's paralyzing. You start out with danger. You enter into chaos of of open enemies and hidden enemies, darkness, and yet somehow through trusting in God in the end, there's joy and there's life shining like the sun. For everyone who has faith in God, darkness never wins in the end. It never does. Now you may be in a place right now where you would swear that there is no light at the end of the tunnel. That you would just swear, see, you don't know my circumstances, you have no idea how awful things are right now. There's no way that there can be light at the end. I promise you, the psalmist felt that way at the beginning of verse 1. But when you turn your eyes from the circumstances of the enemies around you and you focus on God, even when you're afraid, because you're afraid, you go to God. And in the end, there can be joy and triumph and victory and protection and safety and love in a transcendent way, which causes everything in your life to be 
like the sun. So where are you today? Did you, did you sleep last night? And did you have one of those restless nights that God records? Are, are you feeling like the, the, the sun of God's favor is shining upon you this morning? Well, it doesn't really matter how you're feeling. What you need to do objectively, wherever you are, is, is cry out to God. Establish that relationship. Cling to Him. Look to Him. He is the one who can give you deliverance. He is the one who can give you joy. He is the one who can give you light and life. He is a great God. And we have an opportunity to praise and to worship Him together in song. So I'm asking our musicians to come and lead us in our closing song.